0: Every year, these 40 days leading to Easter draws us back into the desert wilderness with Jesus. Into the wilderness is where the Spirit drove Jesus after his baptism as beloved. So we return there with him, letting the wilderness of our current lives form us, as it did for Jesus, as beloved, and transform us, as it did for Jesus, into who we are and what we are to do. Yet this Lent, we have to ask ourselves, haven't we had a whole year of wilderness already? And yes, yes we have, which is why this Lent 2021 at Sawhouse, we let the wilderness of this year be with us by drawing us closer together so we can witness to each other's pain and grief we carry. So our Lenten journey is called, I need a witness. We all need a witness to be close enough to hear our pain. We will follow the lead of the Black Church in America, how historically the Black Church places such importance on the function of witness or testimony, Story shared from the pulpit and also from the sofa or kitchen table. As someone shares their story of pain, there's the audible response of testify and can I get a witness? Here, this sharing and witnessing performs two functions. First, it affirms their pain, trials, or suffering as real and not imagined. Second, it affirms God's presence and grace as real and not imagined. And the sharing then, the presence of pain and the presence of God, both are witnessed. To aid you in this journey, you can print off your own Lenten bingo card offering daily opportunities to ask, how am I showing up with others today? Which closes the distance between us and creates space to witness. It is this daily practice that will form us this Lent. And each Sunday will draw us closer to the cross and empty tomb as we explore first how we witness to our own pain and then to witnessing to the pain of others. Then finally, that pain suffered by Christ for the world. We'll see how the pain is real and not imagined and that God's grace and presence is real and not imagined too. So take a deep breath and let's witness in the wilderness together.
1: Tomorrow night, about 16 of us are ending an eight-week book study on Jamar Tisby's The Color of Compromise. It's about the complicity of the white church in racism. And on the first day, I can remember several of the participants uh, saying, hey, I hope we just don't talk about stuff in this group. I hope that we're going to really do something. And I had that same feeling, too, you know, and... Then, you know, I realized that sometimes my swift action is more about me acting to address my discomfort. Um, It's action to, you know, to fix. And Jamar Tisby, his invitation in The Color of Compromise is to first see and to listen and to understand American history and church history from a black perspective and to sit with that pain first, to sit with it, to become a witness, really. In the Exodus story, we hear Yahweh tell Moses at the burning bush, says, I've taken a good hard look at the misery of my people. I've heard their cries, Yahweh says. I know all about their pain, Yahweh says. So the Bible, front to back, is a witness to the pain of the oppressed. God is a witness to the pain of the oppressed. And God sees and hears, understands, and acts. And how does God act? But by inviting others to become a witness. Friends, your witness is God's action in the world. Your witness, it's God's action in the world. And my friend, Ryan Crane, he doesn't remember this, but I learned this from him. I learned this from you, Ryan. So when I considered uh, working at a private Christian high school, I, I had reservations about it. I mean, this is a school where, you know, I had graduated, I grew up in this school, right? So I knew all the ins and outs of it. But then I met this history teacher, Ryan Crane, and I sat in on his social justice class, and I saw how engaged and how empowered his students were. And I thought to myself, my goodness, this is something that I want to be a part of. So I am so grateful for your witness, Ryan Crane, and I want to present to you, Salt House, a dear friend. He's a high school history teacher. Lord have mercy on him right now. But more than that, Ryan is a story hearer and a storyteller. So please, will you give a warm Salt House welcome to Mr. Crane.
2: Hey, Salt House community. My name's Ryan. I've been invited to speak to you today on the topic of what it looks like, what it means to bear witness to the pain of others. I've been invited by a good friend of mine, a former colleague, Ryan Marsh. So thank you, Ryan, for the invitation. Uh, it means a lot. I cherish uh, the next 10 to 15 minutes that I get to spend with, with your salthouse community here. A little bit about myself. I born and raised in the Seattle area. I've traveled to like 40 different countries, but only like three states. Uh, I was raised in the of conservative evangelical church in the seattle area and i'm learning to at this point in my faith journey to still see good in some of those places as there was so much hard that i've had to unpack and unlearn and relearn i am now currently for the last 10 years or so i've been a us history teacher in the seattle area recently the last 12 months i have like 160 ish Zoom rectangle students that are I'm meeting with somewhere in the, the North Seattle area. And the amount of joy I experience when a student actually puts their video on and smiles, um, it's hard to describe, <laughs> but it's, it's amazing uh, when students put their videos on. So I want to talk to you today about what it looks like to bear witness to the pain of others. And for me, as a, as a white dude born in the U.S., at a really good time to be born in the U.S. Um, I was born with a ton of power, unearned power. And so this idea of what I do with those moments where I, I bear witness to the pain of others is, is really important, how I leverage my, my privilege um, in, in these moments what I do with it. I want to start by sharing either again or for the first time scripture from Exodus. That sort of sets up. I'm going to use this scripture from Exodus and my own story to hopefully give you some access points into what it looks like to bear witness to the pain of others. So Exodus 3, 7 to 10. Think about as I read where you are in this story. God said, I've taken a good long look at the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries for deliverance from their slave masters. I know all about their pain and and I now have come down to help them. Pry them loose from the grip of Egypt, get them out of that country, and bring them to a good land with wide open spaces. The Israelite cry for help has come to me, and I've seen for myself how cruelly they're being treated by the Egyptians. It's time for you to go back. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the people of Israel, out of Egypt. I see more or less three groups. I see God, I see the Egyptians, and I see the Israelites. I was conditioned in my church upbringing to either see myself, center myself as the hero in the story, the protagonist, or the persecuted. I've now learned that I actually have more in common with, like, the pharaohs and the Egyptians of the Bible, with the Pontius Pilates and the Romans of the Bible, than I do with um, a lot of the heroes of the Bible, a lot, a lot of the um, the marginalized and the oppressed of Scripture. And this has been like like uh, the rug of what I thought about religion has been like pulled out from underneath me when I started unpacking this. And I'm still trying to figure out what this means for how I see people in places of the Bible, of, of today even. And again, where we place ourselves as, if you're like me, um, as, as a white person with power, um, or if you're not like me, you definitely have access to these stories as well. Um, where we place ourselves. Our posture in these stories is really important as we attempt to bear witness to the pain of others. So as I share my own story, also consider what your access point is. My story takes place in a high school community I used to teach and lead in. My story is about me and a group of students, mostly students on the margins of the school community and in the United States, Um, and I want to be careful not to center myself because it is about the, the the pain and the invitation of these students. But I think my story, my part in the story may also be the most accessible for some of you. So to my students out there, if any of you ever come across the salt house website and come across this video, know that I see you, I value and cherish those moments we had together. And I, and I, um, and I, uh, I hold very carefully close to my heart this story, and I hope it honors you. And I have asked your permission years ago if I can share this story. And you said, yes, thank you. About nine years ago, I was hired to teach social studies in a private Christian high school in the Seattle area. Along with my passion for social studies, I came with a passion for social justice. Though at that time in my journey, social justice for me was charity. It was missions trips. It wasn't injustice in the US. It wasn't solidarity with those in the margins. It wasn't disrupting the status quo. It was missions trips for sure. Um, a huge part of the role that the social justice program became was a safe place for students to question the status quo. And the school they were in was the top 1% of society, and so they were immersed in the status quo. It was also a safe space for students on the margins to feel seen and heard, to, to vent, um, that sort of thing. Course units for the social justice course, I also taught U.S. history, but the social justice course, course units were called journeys. They were focused on things like the refugee journey, the immigrant's journey, the environmental journey. There's a ton of variety and diversity and, and richness in all those journeys, but that was, those were the course unit titles. While learning about these difficult journeys, students not only like learned stories, but they also learned how to be equipped with the tools of peacemakers. In their own lives like how to de-escalate in a Socratic seminar in class, how to engage on social media in a way that disrupts and invites, and for white students how to be in solidarity with with those that you care about, your your friends. In the spring of 2018 the social justice class was learning about the refugee journey. I remember having on the board for that day's lesson a quote from the a professor of English and American Studies at USC, a quote from Viet Than Nguyen, that said something like, refugees are more than a crisis or an issue. They're stri- striving, flawed, beautiful human beings. I left, left school that day. I came back the next morning, half hour before school started, and I looked at the board, and I was shocked, taken aback. Um, I saw someone had written, not from my class, but someone had come into my classroom and written, next to the word refugees, they had written hate speech targeting the Muslim community and the black community. I had a choice in that moment. Some of you may have encountered similar things in your own uh, journey. You have a choice. Do you walk away from it? Do you erase it? Do you ignore it? Or do you do something with it? And in that moment, I chose to do something with it. I, I'm still a little bit insecure about um, this part that that part of the story, like, should I, like, did I hurt students more by having them lean into their trauma? I'll, I'll, you'll see more as I, as I share here. So said differently, if I erased it, would I be choosing to continue that racism doesn't exist here? Or, or would I use it to invite the community into lament and change? I chose to use it from what I know personally. And what I've read, white institutions would often rather erase it and not deal with that stuff. Because it, it, uh, it's tough, it's hard and move on from these racist incidences, seeing these as rocks to shake out of their institutional shoe rather than seeing the sole of the shoe as the problem. That morning, I invited a group of students, mostly students of color, students on the margins into my office to share with them what happened. This was a really hard decision, uh, but I invited them in. I most of them were seniors. I had very good relationships with them over the last four years. My, my classroom and my office were safe spaces for them. And I told I showed them the words. Immediately, they wanted to burn the place down. They wanted to revolt. They wanted to blow up social media. Um, and I, I had to navigate carefully because I knew that these words were reminders of their trauma. Whereas like end of the day, I could just go home. And my, my privilege allowed me to walk away from the pain of these words. They told me they weren't surprised that this was just a more explicit version of the racism that they experience. implicit reminders of who they are on a daily basis. We talked some more and decided that we wanted to use it as a transformative moment for the school community. And so we just paused and just started planning. So over the next few weeks, picture myself and these social justice students mobilizing in my office at lunchtime after school in creative resistance. Not the kind of resistance that, that wants to destroy or give up on, but a space that believed in a community's ability to be better. Many of these students had younger siblings in the school, so I think this is what fueled much of their desire to do this moment well. I stayed in the background and jumped in when needed. Students created a list of requests for those in power. An example was to have teacher training and unconscious bias to share with the rest of the student body what happened and include a statement that takes a firm stance denouncing racism. Throughout the month of May, this group kept Knocking on the door of power, asking for something. These asks were often turned down or diluted to a gentler, kinder version for the ears of the status quo. And we kept on returning in these moments of creative resistance to come up with ideas to move the school forward. Finally, our, our, our final, um, as, as the school year was winding down, our final ask was for teachers to come to be invited to a space, the, the library before school on the last, before school day on the last week of school to hear students' stories, to become proximate to uh, young people's stories, realities of their stories that these teachers had shepherded over the last few years, four to six years as middle school and high school teachers. This is what transpired. Reminder that all of this is student-created. It was a Tuesday morning on the last week of school where around 70 teachers and staff members gathered in the library. Important for me to note in this story is that the common denominator for teachers in this community is a deep love for all their students. Yes, the impact of conscious and unconscious racism from good, good people still sucks and carries with the trauma, but these teachers seriously love their students. Once the teachers got, got settled, they were given context of why they were all gathered. Then I motioned for the 12 students that chose to share their stories this day to walk into the room and, and take their seat on 12 stools in front of their teachers. Imagine the power dynamics in this moment where teachers are seated in the audience and students with kind of implicating stories to tell, came in and sat in the front their stools a bit higher than the chairs that the faculty were sitting on. Majority of these students were students of color or LGBTQIA+. After a moment or so of silence, one of the students explained to everyone in the room what would happen next. Each student on down the line would share something that was true to their story as it pertains to race or something similar. And whoever else in the room it was true to should snap their fingers once. So if I was sharing, I would say, I am a white guy and all the white guys in the room would snap their fingers. That wasn't one of the examples though. Because the high majority of the people were in the room were white, there weren't many snaps aside from the students in front. So students on down the line said these things that I'm about to share with you with very few snaps happening around the room. I've been told that race-based trauma in my own story is untrue. I've tried to distance myself from my race because of insecurity. I've been asked to speak on behalf of people of my race. I want to pause this right here. This is bearing witness to the pain of others. These teachers, including myself sitting in this audience, hearing from students that we deeply love and care about and have invested in, sharing things that have happened in our class, may have happened in our classrooms, they didn't, students didn't use names, is we're becoming really proximate to the pain of others. I've been taught that my story begins with slavery and ends with Martin Luther King Jr. I've been called a terrorist. This comes from a, um, a Muslim student. I've had people try to save me from my religious beliefs. I've been the only person of my race in a classroom. I've had strangers touch my hair, teachers touch my hair because it seems unique and exotic. I'm often followed in stores by managers, suspicious of my intentions. I have been asked where I am from because of how I look. This was a powerful moment. Power dynamics shifted in this room and the audience Students in front with these I statements revealing painful realities, teachers were invited into the impact of racism on the students they had taught over the years. Then a few students shared longer stories of what it is like to be them in dominant culture communities. Each of these stories reveal to people like me, to white people, how the narratives we tell ourselves that are a part of our status quo don't benefit everyone because our status quo is unjust. I want to highlight a couple. One student shared what it's like to be a Palestinian Muslim female in a white Christian community where her people being displaced and their land taken is seen as a necessary step of the Christian journey. She shared how she always stayed home from school on 9-11 because of the looks she would get and the comments that were made. Another student shared what it's like to be a black male in a white suburban community, neighborhood. He shared how when going for a run, multiple times when going for a run, first training for soccer, um, he had been followed slowly by a police car in his neighborhood in uh, in North Seattle. Then the the police car pulled him over. He was told to put his hands on the roof of the police car while he was searched. This is in broad daylight with neighbors coming out of their homes to see what was happening. He was asked what he was doing in the neighborhood. He said he lived in that house down there, pointing to his own home. The police officer doubted him, took him to the house to see if he was telling the truth, and they knocked on the door both parents, both black, stood at the front door wondering what was going on. Another student, a, uh, a Latina student, her dad wouldn't come to school for parent information night because he was worried that people would mistake him for like a landscaper or that he would stand out because of how he navigated the English language. After stories were shared, students had everyone stand and lock pinky fingers as we prayed for the community. Just like those separated at the U.S.-Mexico border pray through the fence at Friendship Park. I've been with students to the Friendship Park at the U.S.-Mexico border in Tijuana, and families that are separated stick their pinky pads through the wall. That's their only physical contact, and pray and sing worship songs. It's a really beautiful, beautiful experience. Difficult. Beautiful. To be honest, this was the moment I was most worried about. When invited into narratives like this that challenge the status quo, dominant culture, people like the teachers in this case, could just leave, could get defensive, could question the realities like, no, that didn't happen. You're just trying to make me feel bad. But in this moment, Teachers moved to the front of the room and embraced their students, many in tears, grieving the impact that racism has had on these young people that they love. This was that moment of bearing witness to the pain of others and what do I do with it? The teachers had to, for like 45 minutes, sit in these stories and feel it and lament it. So important. Out of this space, a growing number of teachers began asking administration for training around unconscious bias and equity. One teacher asked the Muslim student for suggestions in making her Islam unit better. Ideally, as white people, when we learn these things, we should do the work on our own and not continue to ask people impacted to help us. Out of this space, an equity team that began as a group of parents evolved into a group of staff that were given permission to lead the community in multiple equity-based trainings for the, ne- the next year. This was a step towards restoration. One student said in closing, I graduate in a few days. I did not have to sit in front of you and relive my trauma for you, but I'm here for the young kids at the elementary school that look like me that will be in your classrooms one day. This is my legacy. Wow. Mm -hmm. I'm almost, almost finished here, but I want to just give a moment for y'all, however you're encountering my talk right now, to just sit in those painful stories of what the status quo can do to people on the underside of power, people on the margin, margins of society. What do we do as we bear witness to the pain of others? I want to share a few takeaways here. some things to consider. Each of us have moments in our lives that are catalytic. Moments where they're often unexpected, spontaneous, we're proximate to something that is either really beautiful or really painful, and we're left with trying to figure out what do we do with it. In this moment where I'm physically and emotionally present for someone's, someone's trauma, what will my response be? As a social justice Christian, regardless of my activism i will never be able to free myself of the status quo that i live in and benefit from me as a white male christian because of that i must always start with looking inside myself then invite others that look like me into unearth and dismantle the foundations of the unjust unstable house we live in and it's these stories that remind us that the house that we live in is unstable because without these stories, if we just avoided them, the house would seem fine. Each of you in your own life have people and spaces already that can use your investment. Family, work, friends sure go to the march. Repost your people on social media, consider your proximity or lack thereof to stories different than your own. But our response to another's pain that is directly tied to systems that we I benefit from must be to invite others like me in to pick up a shovel, start digging, dismantle and re- rebuild the unjust, unequal house—the the, the house that we live in. It's really important that as we become proximate stuff, that our that our immediate response isn't to go help the people that we have maybe hurt. It's to, in this case, especially as it pertains to bearing witness to the pain of others in terms of unjust systems that we consider our own implication in these systems as well. Empathy. Use this to grab a shovel and unearth the unjust foundations and put the sign in your yard that says who matters. Invest in those. If you're like me, I have a ton of people I left behind in my life because I just saw stuff differently, religious stuff differently, values stuff differently, and I hyperventilate in those moments of tension. What does it look like to reinvest in some of those people? What does it look like to consider where you've gotten on the journey of like social justice, Christianity, that sort of thing? Think about the moments that you've had in your journey, whether it was a, a trip, a movie, a spontaneous moment, relationships whatever it might be think about your moments in your journey and invite try to invite those people into moments like that rather than thinking that you need to shout at them from where you're at expecting them to understand where you're coming from go back and invite them into those catalytic moments in your own journey vocalize discomfort in white dominant spaces online the dinner table in a staff meeting Wherever it might be, vocalize that discomfort. You don't have to have all the words, all the answers, but say, that doesn't feel right. Disrupt. Don't leave it to a staff member or friend of color to be the disruptor of stuff that they are most impacted by. Vote, vote for people that are different. Vote Vote with people in mind that are different than you, those in the margins. School board, like participate in the school board in your local community. Who are who, What teachers are being hired? What's the anti-racist um, movement forward look like for the school community? Use your power. What are the books you read your children? How do you spend your money? Make a list of those places where you have power in your family, friendships, job life, and what is one step forward that can invite. Don't just cancel. It's easy to cancel we gotta invite, especially if you're like me, a white person with power, we gotta invite people like us into dismantling this stuff. That's all I have for today. There's, there's more to the story, more to my own journey, um, but I really hope that you're able to walk away with what it might look like to bear witness to the pain of others not just rush to fix, but sit in the realities that other people are are in pain, maybe because of systems that benefit us. Thanks again.